Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast may contain some strong language and adult themes. If you've got young children around, maybe save it until they've gone to bed. If you really don't like bad words, this pod probably isn't for you. Welcome to the Making Up the Numbers podcast. The Making Up the Numbers podcast is sponsored by Hope Technology, JTEC Suspension, Revolution Bike Park, Ride Southern Spain, Schwalb, and the world's finest independent mountain bike magazine, Single Track. Previously on the Making Up the Numbers podcast. So tell us a little bit about the dream crusher. What's it like sitting in the hot seat and there's one rider between you and your first World Cup win and you know it's Omri. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us the the feeling sitting there. At the top, I wasn't even that nervous. I thought he was going to get it 100%. So I definitely thought he was going to get it. Like I was like, oh, he'll win for sure. So whatever, like it's pretty cool. And then he was at 1.8 back. So I was like, well, I've smoked him there. And then it turns out he smoked me somewhere else. But I think... Andy Cobb's like, you've got it, you've got it. And I was like, honestly, I don't think I do because you're saying it. Like, I really even like reverse psychology and like weird shit. And I'm like, you're saying I've got it too much. It isn't going to fucking happen now. Like, Shut the fuck up, Andy. Being second is like, it can be hard, you know, especially I think behind your teammates. But I think he's younger and he really like appreciating every moment, every good moment. So for sure in my case, if I finish second behind him, I'm like, fuck it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm older, you know, we have, I'm five years old more than him. So you have less time. yeah, you have plenty of time to play with. For me, it's not the same. So are you a fan of Fort William? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not fan. I really like this track. 
because it's uh, really tough, long and strange, but I've never been really, really good uh, on this track. So that's why my goal was to be the best preparer I can for this race. And I was really stoked about this place because second in front of William, uh, it's amazing. And when you, even if I was just really close to the win, uh, Amory has been good for years on this track. So second place was like a win for me for William. And then, then I came back like when the surgeon told me that I was good but I wasn't really I was like still in pain and then at 4 a.m. I hit a hole and I just bent my arm like it bent all the metal plate I remember that yeah so I had like this bent arm and then I raced Leo Gang anyway because I just couldn't believe it that it was that bad so I was like this is not possible my arm's like broken and I'm racing in Leo Gang and I was just like telling myself that it's okay but it wasn't I, I still qualified, so I was like, that was good. Hello, and welcome to our first episode of 2023. And in this episode, we're going to be chatting with the bulldog, Brooke McDonald, about, well, there's so much to chat about with Brooke, but anyone who listened to the episode with Wynn will probably remember him telling us how when uh, Brooke came over to Europe, he didn't know how to cook pasta. So we'll definitely be asking about that. But first, Jack, Emmy. It's been a while. Good Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, good uh, good break and nice to see all the family and stuff. And as you can hear, I'm a little bit worse for wear. I've just got back from uh, my best mate, Stag Do, skiing and uh, partying for five days in Andorra. So you might have to bear with me a little bit this evening. <laughs> You've gone worse in the last, since this call started, you're getting worse. I hope it don't continue <laughs> to deteriorate. It's going to fluctuate, man. Like It seems to be okay. And then all of a sudden I'll be like, Oh my God. And then I'll come out of it again. So yeah, I, I'll stay with you. I promise. Cool. Emmy, you all right? Yeah, all good. All good. Also had a pretty good Christmas. Went to Final Ligure after Christmas for New Year's Eve. Yeah. And, um, yeah, for the, for the Brits out there, I saw my old mate, uh, Fionn Griffiths. She was with us. She didn't yes. ride because she's like recovering from, um, from an injury. So, but it was nice to see her. I haven't seen her in three or four years. So. Yeah, we had we had a good time. It was not the best weather, but at least it wasn't snowing. We have like about yeah. twenty centimeters in the garden right now. So yeah, wow. yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the last few episodes have been a bit hectic, and we haven't had much chance to chat. So so tell us what have you been up to for the last few months, Jack? How's the, how's the team coming together? Um, oh, you've put me on the spot there. Yeah, so we're doing we're doing good. Um. Obviously, SS Tour is still our partner sponsor and excited for yet another year with them. Um, we have lost a couple of sponsors, um, obviously Coventel being one of them. Um, I'm not quite ready to confirm who we're going to be going with. Um, pretty sure things are all set um, and agreed. Just wait to sign the paperwork. So definitely next episode. Hopefully yeah. we'll have some, uh, some good news of what the team's doing. Um, but yeah, it's just that lull phase. Uh, really just getting everything sorted and training on the quiet. Um, I feel like I'm fully out of my injuries now, which is, which is great. Um, really refreshing. Um, and we're heading back to Portugal next week to do a little bit of prep work. Um, just me, Sarah, Blake, and then two of my guys, Sam and Ruben, we're going to just do some track prep and make sure we're all set uh, for our camp starting in February. And then for February, we're, we're racing every month throughout till October and they're all either national races or or World Cup so um, yeah I mean everybody keeps saying it's a late start to the season but that's World Cup racing 
we've got multiple national races going on before June. So, yeah, just really excited and keen to get back at it. Cool. Emmy? Well, not really much like from the whole pivot side, but um, I'll be going to New Zealand in February, so for four weeks. So I'm looking forward to that after, since 2019, I haven't been there. So, yeah, me and Cam really looking forward to go to the summer side of the world again because <laughs> yeah. winter has been quite harsh on us um we haven't seen the sun in a while yeah here since december um but yeah at least it wasn't like snowing so you could ride but it was very wet so yeah other than that i'll see the team in 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 new zealand and then um cameras a few training caps in with dorval later than in march so uh yeah i'm looking forward to that for sure how many times do you think you've posted that you're looking forward to it on Instagram now? <laughs> um, not that I'm not really been posting that much. I've I've put a few stories because obviously we know we have that team uh, WhatsApp group, so they they're posting. Oh yeah, uh, coffee meetup, blah 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 for coffee. Like every places that I love about New Zealand is just. Yeah out there and they're just like bragging about being there and so obviously it makes you <laughs> want to go especially if you haven't been there in a while and you, it's almost your favorite place in the world yeah so i can understand that i think i'd be counting down myself if i was going there but i'm going to spain in a few weeks ride southern spain so to race oh, the cool. national at otivar so that that should be great um so in the last episode we talked about the changes eso announced that they were bringing in for 2023 has there been any further update on that? Is there anything you can share with us? Um, well, I know there's been a team managers meeting um, with ESO. And um, so there's been further discussions. And I've also heard that the team manager has been asking for an extended deadline on when they not have to, like elite team have to register because they've been discussing. I know exactly, I don't know exactly now how far they've gone. Um, and it's also... Not really outside, but um, yeah. we've um, we're gonna have a next meeting with ESO next week about the format and what the riders thinks. But it's it takes a little bit of time because um, it's hard to be like on on one side hundred percent. Like, and yeah. um, we want to make sure we go at it in a positive way, you know, and not saying oh. Like we don't want this, we don't want that. We want to like work in a proactive way, and that's like needs a little bit of preparation. And um, but for sure, try to maybe work a bit together on the details of the new formats, maybe, and like to make it something that the riders look forward to race. Yeah. You know. Um, what? Well, why? Why do the team managers want to extend the deadline? Do you know? Um. Maybe Jack, you know more. Yeah, well, you'd think some of it would be financial. Um, the prices have gone up massively, um, especially for elite teams that are doing more than one discipline. So it's January. Like yeah. my, my sponsors don't pay us until March. Um, yeah. I'm sure some of the other teams are a little bit like that where some of the money comes in later in the year. So I think it's 18,000 for an elite team to be registering with, with two disciplines. I think that's right. Um, so it's an awful lot of money to be fine. Some of it could be that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, as Emmy says, it's all just a bit up in the air at the moment. It's crazy. It's a good job. It is a late start to the year. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
if we were racing in April. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we ran, we ran out of time in the last episode, but we were going to do a, a complete roundup of all the, the movers and shakers uh, this off-season. So here's what I think we've got. So we've got Andreas Kolb staying with Atherton Bikes, Charlie Harrison retired, Charlie Hatton staying with Atherton Bikes, Gracie Hemstreet staying with Norco, Jacob Jewett to Pivot Factory Racing, Jamie Edmondson to Chile Racing Brigade, Mark Wallace leaving Canyon for Norco, the Mayor Smith Brothers to Giant, Ronan Dunn staying with Nukeproof, Simon Chapelet to Cube, and the announcement of a Madison Saracen junior development team with George Madley, Felix Griffith, and Olivia Taylor, a.k.a. Live Shreds. So those are all the confirmed ones, I think. There's not a lot of movement there, is there? When you look no. at it written down, there's not a lot there. Like shows how consistent it is where they stay with their teams. Yeah. There's a bit more on the rumours. So, Well, there's a couple of these rumours when you get to them that we've seen in the last... Go on, get started and I'll yeah, cut get, you off. Where there's jump one in when you, when, you, yeah. when you hear what... So Angel Suarez, common style 100% is no more, heading to Uno, we believe. Antoine Peron to off Canyon Collective Pirelli, heading to... Well, there we go. He's, he's going to um, the Union, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was maybe confirmed. That has confirmed, yeah. Sorry, I missed Can't that one. Yeah, you were well, right. No, yeah. right. I can't remember who the last the other people are on there. Emmy, can you remember? Um, there's Frida running. That yeah. was it. Uh, there was Oliver Swab. Are we thinking he'd moved on to uh, FMD maybe? So he was on there. Both Zouars have gone. Yeah. I saw the lineup. I can't remember who it was, but both. No. Um, there's like this new, uh, his name is Christian Hauser, or Christoph Hauser. He's like a new Italian guy. That's well, like one. new. He's like first year junior and he's like really, really fast. That's the one. So, yeah. Greg Williamson to Madison Saracen, we think. I imagine if they've announced the junior development team this week, they'll announce that probably next week, you would think. Well, usually they start announcing anytime after the 15th of January, don't they, once that team registration's in. But if they're extending it, it could go on a little longer. Yeah, Henry Kerr to Canyon. You had any more on that, Jack? No. Um, you mean Canyon Factory? Not sure. Or we just thought maybe Canyon. Because because Millie Johnson is going to Canyon Factory, like not Canyon Pirelli or something else. So I would be surprised if another elite would join, but yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe Henry Kerr will go to Canyon Pirelli because I know that after Dan had a good season in 2021 with that 10th at Maribor, mm. that Canyon Pirelli team tried to come in and swoop him away so yeah. mm. Henry's that kind of had a similar type of season to what Dan did so that, that would make sense so Jordan Williams has said goodbye to Madison heading to specialised um, factory racing yeah so that's just been confirmed hasn't it today he's literally literally an mm -hmm. hour on Instagram you can see Jordan's launch yeah. there. so yep Jordan's to specialised which is a very exciting team making tea for the kids so no I haven't seen that yeah yet. you got an excuse mate you got an excuse <laughs> <laughs> Louise Ferguson, full-time to Nukeproof. And as you just said, Millie John set to Canyon. Oliver Zouar, we think, to follow my dream. wonder where his brother's going then. Isn't That's he it. staying with the Union? Was he still on that rider list? Maybe I'm, I'm going to go and look at the Union now. Let I think they're both on it because, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. He, he was on it, but I'm, I'm sure he was leaving. But mm. I've been wrong before and I'll be wrong again. Join the Union. There we go. So I'm racing you. Antoine Pierron and Christian Hauser, like you said, Emmy. Mm -hmm. 
But there isn't the uh, full team list. I've seen that what, somewhere. Was a pi- yeah, I saw well, fr- Frida is for sure on it, but then um, there's like another guy with blonde hair, uh, like yeah. a longer blonde Lucky hair. Lucky Stevens McNabb. Oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah, he was already on it though, wasn't yeah, he? And, uh, and they, uh, yeah, I think so. I'm, sh- I'm sure yeah, they yeah, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, no. will leave it. Yeah, it looks okay. like it. So mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see where he's gone. Yeah. And someone must go, be going to Scott, no? Yeah. If they didn't have if they didn't have cold. Yeah. Yeah. So or, we don't know about that. I mean Dean Lucas is training like fuck. I don't know if anyone's he is, yeah, yeah. seen his Instagram, but and <laughs> place finish in twenty overall in twenty nineteen. And he looked like he was starting to break through and then twenty twenty COVID he he missed out and since he's come mm-hmm. back he hasn't really done it again and he's he seemed a little lost. He's certainly looking in from the outside, it looked like he'd COVID had changed him a little bit, whereas looking at his social media now, it just looks like he wants to wants to race and have it again. So maybe yeah. Scott have said to him, look, you're going to earn this ride or what? So maybe they're just mm. keeping their current lineup and they've shot a rocket up Dean's ass, and we'll see what he does. Mm. So Sam Blankysop said goodbye to Norco. I heard rumours of him going to Prime Bikes, which I believe is his old mechanic. I think that, is that what Win said? Mm. I can't remember. No, it wasn't Win. I don't think. Thomas Stack and Hugo Frick still on new commensal team. I think I think that's pretty much a given. Yeah, there's um, there's um, Iniguez is going on a team too. He's going with, with that's the one. Yeah, there's going to be three of them. Which Iniguez? Uh, Matteo, like the the older one. Um, Rafael is taking over the commensal V team with Silva and Velden, and he's taking over the, the management. Yeah, yeah. And Veronica Vidman to new proof. Any more for any more. Uh, but like you say, there's not a lot of big moves there, is there? Most people stayed, I think. Mm. How do you think we did out of 10 with our rumours? Pretty good, I'd say. Get people interested. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we haven't said anything outrageous for one. No. So there's a few others that are floating around. What about um, the people who had good seasons last year? Austin Dooley? I think Austin stay in the common cell USA. I think they look after him. Yeah. 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 I've heard that too. When I saw him in Whistler, he was like probably staying on the same program. He has a bit more support, but I think yeah. it, it goes well for him. Antoine Vidal. I think he, he's just broken his collarbone, hasn't he? Yeah. But yeah he's, he's, he's staying with Cecile. He has a good setup there. He's, he needs his little Cecile mama. Otherwise, he's going to be in trouble. It's <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> no, but I, I, I really like Antoine, but he's like, He's wild. Imp- impossible to manage. Like, you right, need someone okay. like Cecile to, he's actually a bit of a loose unit herself to, like, keep him in, under control. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, Ant- you might have to help me out with the pronunciation here, Emmy. Antoine Rogge? Is it Rogge or Rog? Um, I would say Rog, but. Rog? Yeah. The, the, the E is probably silent. Yeah. I don't know if it's Rog or Rog. Yeah. He had but a good season Rog. last year. Um, yeah, yeah, he's he's done very well. He's very like kind of quiet guy. I feel like when I talk to him, and he's like, but um, I haven't heard anything. Um, I think I haven't heard anything about it. But probably like the comments are like support for private is pretty good too at World Cup. So yeah, you think twice before like changing bikes and going doing something else. I think. So who do you think's done well? Specialized gravity looks. A frightening prospect, really, doesn't it? With <laughs> Loic, Finn, and Jordan. 
it's almost like going to be a battle of two teams, isn't it? When you look at it on paper between Specialized Gravity and Syndicate. Mm. Laurie, Greg and Jackson versus Loic, Finn and Jordan. Oh, you tell that shot. to you tell it to Cam and she'll slap you in the face. Three dudes written down against those other three. I know. Dudes. Like it's it's like the legends more like the the names. But I think yeah, you're right. I was wondering what the chances are of a, a one, two, three, Loic, Finn and Jordan. Like the Mondraker at World Championship mm. in twenty sixteen. Yeah. Uh, there's always a chance. Yeah. So seeing as we have a bit of time, I thought we could do a few of the quick hypothetical questions. And the first one is, who do you think will be the next rider to win the first World Cup? So I've got a few potential names. Doing the men first. Jackson Goldstone, Jordan Williams, Andy Kolb, Dakota Norton, Bernard Kerr, Benoit Collange, Lucas Shaw, Ronan Dunn, or, or someone else completely? This. Can you see it? I can. The list BK is Sports, there. baby. <laughs> <laughs> you, you I'm going to make Jack very happy with my answer. No, um, I'm just kidding. It's Bernard Kerr for me. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say it. You do. Yeah, yeah. Slowly. Come on, come on. Even if you don't like the guy, he deserves it. He's been he's been around for too long. Let, let the man retire, finally. <laughs> so he can have some peace. <laughs> <laughs> Jack? Name that stands out to me is is Benoit, simply because yeah. of the rate of progression. So, like, I mean, you could say the same for Colt, but like, Lucas Shaw, Dak Norton, Bernard, they're three who've been around forever and just haven't done it. Obviously, mm-hmm. riders with with great lists of results, podiums for all of them, and then you've got three youngsters, Ronan, Jordan, and Jackson. Uh, probably going to have those years where they're trying to find their, their feet. You've got one there in the middle who over the last three years has just progressively been getting better and better and better, has then gone on to qualify first, second at World Champs in 2021. Mm-hmm. So uh, it could obviously they're all capable, um, including Birders, Emmy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, the name that stands out to me is Ben Warren. If I was putting my money on the table, it would be on him. So if I was putting money down, I'd put it on Jackson. He won, came in and won Hardline straight away. Yeah, but Hardline's not a World Cup, is it? I know. It's hard for completely different reasons. BK Sport was out of the game in Hardline. Yeah, that Crashed is his brains point. out. And he was like, <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I love Jackson, but he was only like one second faster than BK's qualifying time. We almost broke in hand. So, I mean, yeah. it, I know it was amazing, for, for example, for him at his first event, but... I don't know, like they hold have the potential and Jackson and Jordan probably more potential than other the other, but I don't know. It will be hard for both of them, I think, first year. We've got, we got to remember this conversation. Yeah. If any of these guys win a World Cup this year, we got to... We, gotta, we, will, we will keep we, a track we of this. Summarize, or even if not, we've got to see who is the closest. So I have an Andy Cole question for you. And... I've heard a rumour this weekend that there was a big money offer from Scott, like you said, Emmy, but he turned it down for a bit less and stayed with Atherton. I think he's 26 years old. He's had an amazing 2022 European champion, fourth in the overall, multiple podiums. Will he ever do better than that? I think so, because it wasn't one result. It was consistent podium pace Mm. and then... Towards the end, it looked like race winning pace that just didn't quite come through. 
so yeah, I think he's looking like the real deal. Um, and you know, obviously the stars have got to align with things like injury and you know all the variables that we have to deal with in the sport. But yeah, I, I think he's going to keep on giving. I think if the ESO rules are, you know, the amends are are as as advertised, I think it puts him in a much better place. Because I was he, about to say that, like he's one of the most consistent rider. Having a Sami and a final on the same day will definitely be up to his advantage, I would say. Yeah, and protected for the finals uh, all the way through. So Here's another yeah. one. Think about this. Like what you've just mentioned, George, about the ESO and the new rules with the, the top five riders who are protected now from that semi into the final. How many of you would have put money down that two of those riders would be Andy Kolb and Bernard Kerr? No, mm-hmm. I fucking wanted them. Like, yeah. it's crazy. How, like how that's worked out. It's going to be interesting to see how those two riders can. To, to be honest, I think that the protection rules might change. Like, there's a good chance. The, I think the riders are not really happy with it, and we're going to try to push to make it either no protection or a larger protection. Yeah, you know, that's a painless change for ESO, really, isn't it? There's some yeah. things that are hard to. Yeah, <laughs> some harder things to discuss. <laughs> Choose your battles, Emmy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and in in the women's next woman to win a World Cup, Jess Blewett, Eleonora Farina, Gracie Hemstreet, one of those, or someone else. Ah, it could be so many though. Like there could be Monica Rasnick. She was like second so many times. She won some qualifying. Um, obviously, I would favor like someone young, like like Jess. Yeah. Um, because Jess has progressed really fast and she's someone with raw pace. So she's not the most consistent yet. And she had really gnarly injuries. So yep. if she can find like that speed without risking too much, um, she could be for sure close to a win. And who knows? I think for the, for Phoebe Gale or something like someone like that, if we get like a really crazy conditions, somewhere and someone get a little bit lucky being like first off or whatever you know any one of these 10 if there's only 10 girls which is something we might try to change but if it's only 10 girls everyone can be up there i think so which do you think will happen first do you think there'll be a new first time winner in the men's or the women's I, you see, it's weird because to me, the men's field is so stacked. Mm. But the women's, I think, I can't see anyone outside Valley, Cam, Nina, Miriam, Marine, Tani winning a World mm-hmm. Cup I just, I, mm. for a while. I just can't see mm-hmm. it. So I think it'll be the men's first. I think it's... Mm-hmm. To be honest, I don't want to say that, but I think it's going to be the men's too because... um I think sometimes the women have like a better, it's like a positive thing. They have a better judgment of like how to pace the race run. And sometimes they do less mistakes or like they're more consistent of their own level yeah. instead of like the guys who, someone like Ronan on Bernard in Snowshoe would just like push so hard that they'll make mistakes, but they'll still like manage to like get on the podium and something. But yeah, I think it's like different. There's more like, risks to win i think in the men's sometimes yeah. and that pays off yeah i, I had got men's as well um the gaps are, are smaller yeah the difference between 
Bernard winning in Snowshoe is probably mm-hmm. much tighter yeah. gap than one of the, as you say, the, the girls who haven't won yet. They're, they're more like five to 10 seconds back from their first win. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, I mean, there's some very talented young women in there who are going to make progress quite quickly. So who knows towards the back end of the season, you might see someone like like Jess really starting to to threaten that top spot. But I think it's also like a little bit different because now we have Jackson and, and Jordan, which are really like the almost exception. Like there's been Loic that's been doing that, but having Jackson and Jordan as potential name for first World Cup as first tier lead, <laughs> that's like, it's a bit crazy, right? And yeah. most times you, you need like maybe two years or something to like get close to it. And Ronan and the, has done it is, this year as his first year, but um, like for the girls, sometimes it needs a little bit more confidence because obviously as a junior you don't you don't qualify you seed only and that's also adding a lot of pressure onto uh, the women's field but i mean now they're changing it probably next year to like qualifying for junior women so maybe it will help them to like make that next step a bit easier and part two of this question there are nine current riders in the men's with one world cup victory each they are brooke mcdonald finn isles laurie greenland Martin Mays, Matt Walker, Reese Wilson, Remy Tyrion, Sam Blenkinsop, and Thibaut Duprella. Which one of those will be the first to win another? I know what Emmy's going to say straight away. Shall I answer <laughs> for you? <laughs> but the first race is Lenza Heide. I don't know about that. So <laughs> we could we could see a big surprise in Lenza Heide. I don't know what the junior times were last year. Maybe you know better than me um, if Jordan or Jackson I were can't close. Remember. But um, I don't think like someone like Ronan Dunn could win Lanza Heide. It's not like the track for him. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I would like Bernard to to win to to win another one, but I don't think it's going to be Lanza Heide, unfortunately. So, which one of these for to win the sec to win the second Finn? It's there's there's is the four that stand out to me: Finn, yeah. Laurie, Matt, and Tibor. They're the four that stand out to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh God, I mean, how do you pick between those four? They're all so similar. Um, I'd say I'd go with momentum and I'd go with Finn. Yeah, I think I would as well. I thought that would have been your answer, Amy. Yeah, I mean, between for me, it's between Finn and Thibaut. Yeah. Um, Laurie could do as well. Maybe the, those three. Well, um, you could see Matt Walker doing it as well. He is right, those four. I would have been happy picking any of those four names. Right, that's part one done and dusted. We'll be back with the Bulldog after these messages. Time to make your bike ride like the pros. World Cup level suspension tuning and servicing from the expert team at JTEC Suspension. Built off years of knowledge and experience, the team at JTEC Suspension will service and tune your suspension to make sure it's in tune with your riding style and terrain to shave those vital seconds off your next race run. Visit j-techsuspension.co.uk today and see how their expert team can transform your suspension performance. Hi, I'm Ollie Wilkins. And I'm Ben, the Deaconator Deacon. We've just spent the last week at Ride Southern Spain. Having a fantastic time. We have. We've ridden countless amounts of enduro and epic downhill trails. That's right, they have a workshop, swimming pool, pizza oven, 
fire pit. They've even got a donkey here, dude. You get a free beer if you ride, you know? That's all right, is that right? So we've just dropped into this first trail of a day. Cheeky little uh, off-piece line here. Nice little dusty berm at the bottom to catch you. <laughs> 600 pounds a week includes accommodation, airport transfers, six days of uplifts and guiding. Check out their social media or website to book your holiday at Ride Southern Spain. Ride Southern Spain. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast for the first time by the Bulldog, Brooke McDonald. How are we doing, Brooke? Very good, thank you. Excellent. That, that's not actually true, is it? We had a bit of a chat in Fort William, but first time on the pod proper. So I have to start with that Windmaster's revelation that, that you arrived in Europe and you didn't know how to cook pasta. You didn't know that you had to put water in. Is, is that true? To be honest, I can't, uh, I can't recall it at that moment, but probably uh, definitely would have been along, something along the lines of that because I was, I was fresh, out of, uh, fresh out of New Zealand, out of home, so I hadn't really uh, done too much cooking. Um, I had a lot of my mum's uh, home-cooked meals, so I was a bit, uh, you could say, I didn't really know how to cook, so yeah, I was thrown in the deep end. Lucky yeah, I have Win Win with me, um, who who obviously experienced the, you know, being away from home and um, having a fend for himself and and cook for himself. So he uh, he he sharpened me up on my cooking skills pretty quickly. Good role model to have. <laughs> <laughs> Very good role model. Very good. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like. I definitely wouldn't be where I am now um, without the likes of Wynn and Blinky. Um, I think uh, those two have just have been a huge, huge play in my career to get me to where I am now. And um, I just think from from local races to helping me trip around New Zealand and, and race uh, national series to being fortunate enough to spend uh, time on a team with Wynn actually multiple years um so yeah um he's played a huge role in in uh where i am today cool well let's rewind a little from the ancelotti days because 2008 you started racing world cups as a, as a first year junior and you got fifth at worlds in val de sol behind josh bryceland tell us a bit about the journey from new zealand to getting across and racing world cups because it was meant to be rugby right yeah there was uh that was where my path was heading until I until I discovered mountain biking. And um, for a long time, I was riding mountain bikes and and playing a lot of rugby. And this was at my when I was at high school. So I was uh, yeah, I would play rugby on a Saturday morning, and then I would go with my grand on a Saturday afternoon to mainly Wanganui, where where we had like a where Wanganui had a pretty good winter series. So I'd just go across here Saturday afternoon and um hang out with Blinky and and Eddie and Wynn and we'd just ride and then race on a Sunday and come home. So um I did that for a long time and I kind of I don't know, I just I didn't fall fall out of the love of rugby. I just kind of liked the whole concept of mountain biking and that it was an individual sport and you race against the clock and I was, you know, I was pretty I guess like I was a person that was chasing adrenaline, so yeah. that uh, that sport definitely had probably a lot more adrenaline in it than rugby did. Um, what position did you play? 
I played first five. So I played first five for a long time. I, yep. I played in the forward pack for a bit. I was kind of, I like to say I was a, a bit of a utility player. I could play most positions. Um, so, yeah. And then, yeah, obviously I kind of had to make a decision between um, what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to carry on with rugby or or pursue um, mountain biking. And, yeah, the first, I think the first trip we did um, was down the South Island for, like, my first national series, and that was with my um, – I think I went with my grandmum and granddad, um, and we just raced three races down there. And, um, yeah, basically from there I got some pretty good results in under 17, and we had a pretty strong field, so the racing was always really good. And then um, travel with, with win um, – for the next probably two years um, down south, and we just sort of made a, a trip out of it. I think we'd go for a month at a t- month uh, between the races and just ride bikes, and and uh, yeah, that's where everything sort of kicked off and got me to where I am today. Cool. So that fifth place that at world ch- at world champs that must have given you a huge amount of confidence. I guess with the field that I was racing against, you know, like the likes of Remy and and Josh and Sam Dale. I didn't actually really know at the time. I kind of, you know, world champs is, is, is a top three and anything, um, you know, below that is still an amazing result. But, you know, to be on the podium at world champs is, is the biggest, um, you know, achievement you can get from world champs. So at the time, obviously, I knew that I wasn't, you know, there was no potential of me being in the top three. But, yeah, I kind of didn't really know where that would take me I, I kind of just thought fifth place in the world like not knowing that it was gonna give me a ride for the following year and um when and I kind of well mainly when I think he kind of sourced the Ancelotti deal and and then um yeah I come along with it so yeah that's how how um my career started for racing world cups well, we were just about to move on to that. So 2009, you joined Angelotti. And this was the time when there wasn't the separate junior category at World Cup. So you got 25th at Fort William. And then at Canberra World, you took the junior title ahead of uh, ahead of Danny. Is that right? I'm sure I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, if we remember right, it's quite a flat track as well. How was that race? It was horrible, to be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that. Did you race that one as well? Yeah. At that time, all I knew was riding bikes. Like <clears throat> I didn't know, and I, I guess for a lot of a lot of us athletes at that time, like trail bikes wasn't a massive thing. And you know, for for a lot of my career, I would just like literally push up a hill, and I felt like that was my fitness. But it, you know, even at the time, I wasn't even thinking about fitness. It was just more so relying on on talent, and obviously, being young, you had fitness there. So I didn't really have an understanding of what fitness was about or what specific training you had to do to race a World Cup or, or, you know, how fit you needed to be. So I kind of, when I come home, I can't remember what race I come home from, but I had like six weeks in between from when I come back from Europe to Canberra and I literally spent like six weeks at my grand's house on a farm and I literally just try to seclude myself because at that time I was, you know, 16, 17. So I was like 
socializing a lot and and you know partying was a big big part of my life then so I kind of like knew what I wanted to do and I knew that obviously in 2008 I got fifth place at world champs so I wanted to do better than that and I never I didn't know that I could win world champs I was I would have been happy with with a um you know top three so I just went to my grands and spent a whole heap of time on a wind trainer with uh this like hardtail scott cross country bike that i bought and set it in uh in her living room and and i would just sit there and do like five ten second sprints not really knowing what i was doing and um literally like when i finished that when i was ready to go overseas like there was just like big black tire um like little you know from the rubber like when it melts on the <laughs> wind trainer it was just all up her um all up her walls <laughs> and for me like i thought yeah I've, I've been training hard like you know I've <laughs> um and then to be honest it actually paid off because like i felt like i was half you know half decent my fitness was half decent and yeah like i i was i was pretty strong so i felt like that bottom section at, at canberra really suited me and i really enjoyed the track up until that bottom bit but mm. Yeah, I just knew that, like, if I put a massive effort into the bottom section, that it would pay off in some some way of a of a good result. And yeah, I you know happened to end up winning the junior worlds, which was pretty awesome because, like, obviously Danny and um, Sean O'Connor were the favourites, and to be uh, standing with those two beside me was was a pretty special feeling. And to do it on a on Ancelotti, which you know a bike is made out of their um their garage and you know that was probably the the biggest uh highlight of their careers you know me winning world champs on their bike so it was pretty cool yeah that's cool when you look down the list of junior world champions nearly all of them have gone on to be fast fantastic elite riders were you conscious of that after winning was there any kind of expectation or pressure you put on yourself moving into elite no nah, not to to be honest not really because like you were saying um jack was when I when I was racing, all I knew was was you know elite category, and like we kind of you know whether we qualified or not, we still were qualifying with the elites, and it was just like you know there was a little small mark on your name, whether I think like a yeah, J maybe meaning junior. So like the the transition for me wasn't actually that bad, um, whereas I feel like now if it was back then, it probably would have been a lot harder. Um, but obviously there was a small amount of pressure on, on myself to do good and, and being world champ too was, was like, you know, everyone was sort of looking at me, but I also think, which was, you know, cool then was that like what with, with now, like you didn't actually get the chance to wear world champs jersey and at races. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Like, you know, I didn't have that pressure of putting on a, well, you know, obviously I moved into a late, so it didn't I couldn't really wear it. But, you know, I felt like if I did do that in junior first year going into second year wearing a world champs jersey would be a lot more pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, I think like the transition was was pretty easy for me. Nice. Well, I can tell you something actually got a funny kind of podcast fact here you, you may not have had much pressure like that you had on yourself at that first elite world cup in 2010 but you did put some pressure on me 
because you won't even remember this, but that Maribor 2010 World Cup was my first ever World Cup. Um, I was still at university at the time and you followed me down in qualifying. Can't imagine you even know that, do you? <laughs> no, I can't remember that. <laughs> and I, rem- I literally sat in that start gate and looked behind and saw it was you and I knew you were the junior world champ for the year before and I shit myself. And the last thought <laughs> I had leaving the gate was, he's going to catch you. He's gonna, he's gonna fucking catch you. Um, so yeah, so you may not have the worst feeling, eh? Yeah, mm. made me ride well, though. I beat you. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So yeah, go. motivation I needed. So my first, my first national of it was Fort William, and it was I think Emmy was there. It was the one where the gondola they didn't do the gondola, so we had to push up to like. Oh yeah, for sure, yeah. I was there. And there was like that fifty-yard-long muddy shoe. Yeah, yeah. remember that oh, off yeah, the yeah. start. <laughs> so, so my first practice run at a national, I I'm looking down this shoe. There's elite riders lining this shoe, three or four deep on either side. And I look behind me as I'm about to set off, and I've got Remy Thierry on behind me. <laughs> and I was like, put it this way, I didn't beat Remy Thierry on Jack. <laughs> that is one of the only times I think I have beaten Brooke. But yeah, it was uh, it's an experience I'll never forget. Tell you. Okay, anyway, so 2010, moved up to Elite, and you finished the season really strong. Sixth at Champery, 13th at Baldassar, 8th at Wyndham, and then 12th at Worlds. And that continued into 2011. Three World Cup podiums, third at Fort William, third at Mont Anne, fifth at Wyndham, sixth in the overall. You must have been buzzing with those first two seasons. I was, to be, to be honest. Like, again, like, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was literally just riding my bike and having so much fun. And those two seasons, like, looking back on them, were probably, like, the best seasons that I've had in a way of actually enjoying riding my bike and having fun and just, like, going out and racing and not feeling the pressure. Um, and, like, you know, that first podium that I had in uh, Fort William was crazy because I think um, I think G, G1 maybe? I don't know. I was standing on the podium with Danny. I know Danny was sick. Was it Greg? Maybe. I'll get this um, for you one second. Maybe Greg, yeah. Greg. I think it might have been Greg. Yeah, maybe Greg, Danny, and then me. Um so yeah, to be mm-hmm. I mean, to be standing on the podium with those guys like, you know, flat pedals, um, a guy who wasn't like overly fit, um, was yeah, it was a huge like yeah, just a huge, huge uh confidence booster going into that season. And then yeah, I guess like those other two podiums, they just come along and like yeah, like I said, I just enjoyed myself and had a whole heap of fun. With the team I was on, like I had, you know, um, Stevie, I had Luke uh, Strobel win for one year, and then uh, also Philip Polk. So we had like a we had a real strong team, and just the you know the whole team dynamic and the way everything around the team worked was was really good. And we all just like rode bikes, partied, travelled, and just loved life. Yeah. Yeah, I can confirm that for you as well. It was Greg, Danny, yourself, G, Aaron, top five. Yeah, what a podium! So that yeah, is. I yeah. mean, like <laughs> to be to be in amongst like those guys who like are pretty well decorated riders. Um, 
even at the time, you know, was, was pretty outstanding. Definitely. So 2012, you then moved on to Mondreka. Not quite as consistent the season, um, but you took your first World Cup win um, in Val d'Azere. Tell us a little bit about that weekend. Yeah, so I mean, like, if I can elaborate on that season, um, Mondreka actually had just come out with this, uh, the zero stem. Um, yeah. So, like, we had Caesar come out to New Zealand with uh, Marcus Pico and myself, and and we did a bunch of testing. Um, we d- we did testing with the stem, and we were literally just riding uh, one steep track. So um, at the time, that stem was was pretty good. Like I didn't really know notice a whole heap of difference. Um, but yeah, like that stem caused me a lot of grief. Caused me a lot of grief that year. <laughs> um, <laughs> And like I was just like I was crashing so much, and I was always just like trying to figure out, figure out what was going on, and like, um, you know, Fort William, I was crashing every single run I remember, and like even in my race run, I crashed, and um, it got to like yeah, like probably two weeks before Valdezier, and I was just like, fuck this, man, I need to try a forty-five stem, like I need to try this put it on and it was night and day difference. Like it made everything so much better. Um, we also like had a lot of trouble with suspension at that time. Like Mizoki was, had sort of like come on, but weren't like huge into the racing scene. So we also didn't have the greatest support from them and, and just like the people around, like the sport was good, but just the people around didn't really have too much of a idea of, of racing. So yeah, once I put that stem on and then they brought in um, another dude from Mizoki, like my world changed, honestly, like everything from there went really well. And and basically when I put that stem on two weeks prior to winning my World Cup and then went into Valdezia with that stem and, and good suspension set up, but yeah, everything changed. And I went from someone who was, I don't know, struggling a lot to ride my bike and feeling like, what am I doing wrong to someone who is just like on top of the world? Um, you know, especially winning a World Cup, you know, being in front of the likes of G and, and Greg and um, Aaron and Rat Boy was, was massive. And I knew like, I knew that weekend, like from when I qualified, I think I qualified third. So I kind of had a pretty good idea of, of like, how it was potentially going to end up. And I just felt really good on that track. And yeah, um, I happened to end up winning it. And basically from there, my whole career changed. My life changed. I went from, yeah, someone who was obviously a podium rider to winning a World Cup. And then, you know, everything sort of might, the whole, everything opened, like all the doors opened for me for, you know, bigger contracts. Um, it made me realise like if I actually want to make a career out of this, I have to put my head down and, you know, work and train and actually get a trainer on board and, you know, get the necessary things that are going to make me potentially win more World Cups. Yeah, Brooke, so you just mentioned it, 2013, big move to track. So that's obviously like a huge step. Um, you started your season on on the track team really well. You won, you won national champs. Um and then also you second at the first World Cup in Fort William, which you seem to like. 
Um, yeah. Then 2013 kind of like tailed off a bit after that. But in 2014, I got a couple of podiums in Logan, win them fifth at Worlds. And um, also kind of the same towards 2015, constantly around the top 10. Um, and the season with a fourth in in Val de Sol. There's a lot of solid results, but obviously yeah. um, after that win in Val like, um, how do you look back on that time with Trek? Um, to be honest, like that move to Trek was was a huge game changer for me. Obviously, um, being able to work with with Martin Whiteley, who mm-hmm. has been in the sport for over 25 years and, and ran multiple teams. Um, obviously, I was a little bit nervous. I knew Martin ran a tight ship and um, I didn't really know what to expect or how to approach it, but um, I felt like I fell into to that team pretty well and adapted to everything. And um, those three years, I definitely learned a lot about time management, how a team's run, and just how everything around that team was professionally done um obviously being trick you know the there was a pretty solid budget so you know there was nothing limited so we got to you know martin really looked after us with staying in nice accommodation and eating good food so like that you know really paid a huge benefit in in those three years there but i think just the whole like if i was to look back on those three years there i think the biggest thing that I liked about that was obviously the organization and you know the time frames that we had to be on be on time but I think just the um just the general team environment of like literally not having to worry about a single thing but racing um was the hugest thing for me because obviously as you know me like and Jack like the biggest thing is that in racing is that you focus on one thing and that's riding your bike and riding it fast and then everything around you is is done by the people involved in your team and I felt like with Martin's team like that really made made everything a lot easier um and I think that's that's so important in a in a team and yeah um I obviously like you know when my time come with Trek there was um, some I think like Trick didn't want to continue with Martin, so we were all kind of left with uh, with it heading our own ways. But um, yeah, I think like I learned definitely definitely learned a lot of life lessons from from Martin, and you know took them to other teams. And you know, like obviously where I am now, I like a, a balance between all that stuff, and I definitely like a bit of a loose program, but also. <laughs> I like a program that that works and can make life easy. Yeah, I know for sure a lot about loose programs. You know that. <laughs> 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 no, but um, obviously, like it must have been great to be working with Martin. I've listened to a few podcasts of him recently, and it's you learn always so much. So it must have been a great experience for you. Um, twenty sixteen, you move on to GT and. Yeah, it's not really a big secret that you didn't really um like like really gel with the bike and it was reflecting on your result as well. Um you had two seasons on that bike. What didn't you like about it? Was there like something specific? Um yeah, that was there was a rough two seasons. I struggled a lot there. Um I definitely didn't gel with the bike and I think um 
a lot of us on the team didn't gel with it. Um, I think like the bike was, it was quite old. It was, it was obviously a design from the Atherton. So it was designed around them and how they rode. So, you know, I, I thought joining GT, like definitely there shouldn't be an issue there because obviously what Jed had done on that bike was pretty phenomenal. And, um, you know, I thought, well, if G can do it, I can do it, but it definitely wasn't the case. So I think like, you know, obviously I struggled so much with the bike and I think like my riding style definitely didn't suit that bike. And at the time when I joined, I felt like the bike was definitely outdated. Um, it did need a lot of work done to it. And yeah, I just, I could not get on with it well. And as like, as soon as I started going fast on it, it definitely was a bike that just became dangerous and I didn't have an idea of what it would do. So it was super unpredictable going into race runs. And like, I think my best result in those two years was, was an eighth at, um, at Mount St. Anne. And I honestly thought that was like a winning run to me. And <laughs> it felt like a winning run on that bike. Um, yeah. So yeah, those, yeah, those two years were, were real difficult. Um, did you have any chance to develop it at all? Like uh, to like walk on a bike or? Not really. Like that first year I was like, I was so angry, like just with, you know, I don't know, just the results that I had. Like I put in so much work in the off season because obviously, you know, new team and like new motivation. And I was just like, yeah, this is, this is going to be good. And, and then it kind of like my expectations were never really met. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I got to a point where I was just like, fuck this. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to ride a different bike? Like, do I just ride something that's blacked out? Um, you know, I was, I got to a point where I was just so down and I was willing to do whatever it took to, you know, get me to where I knew I was capable of getting to. Um, and then going into the second year, obviously we did have like a, a bike that we tested um, in the middle of the season, well, sort of towards the end of the season after Mount St. Anna, went down to, went into back to America for three or four days and um, done some testing on a mule bike, which was a huge, huge difference from the old bike. And then, yeah, I ended my season and we sort of like GT, I guess, like, couldn't really give me a timeline of when we were going to have a new bike. So I was, I was pretty worried on like, if I stayed with them, um, would I go into the next season with the same bike and not having a new bike? So yeah, I had the option of, uh, MS come along and yeah, I just, uh, knew that was probably a, a good decision to go there and in my, in my contract with, well, just, you know, finish out my contract with GT because mm. I didn't really have a clear picture on when we'd have a new bike. Did did they launch a new bike the next season? Because the next season was when Martin Mays won La Bresse, wasn't it? So did he win yeah. on it? Yeah. Did he win on the new bike or did he win on? They, I don't know. I can't quite remember when they launched that bike, but we said to them, like, I need to have a bike within, you know, January, February. Yeah at the latest so I could start riding and testing it but they couldn't give me a clear picture on on that so I was like well I don't really want to put myself in that situation again and have another potential season like I have the last yeah. two so 
2018, as you said, back to Mondraker. First question, seeing as I were talking bikes, that bike, the one Cesar Rojo designed, if you had to pick between that one and the new one, which one would you pick? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you guys could tell what one I'd pick. <laughs> <laughs> tell me a bit about how the different, how do you find the different? Well, to be honest, obviously Caesar left Mondraker, so that design from 2019 changed into 2020. Um, they brought in a couple of new engineers, and don't get me wrong, the engineers are great, but I don't think they had like a whole heap of knowledge of mountain biking in general or racing specific. Yeah. Um, and obviously with 2020, the you know the season was pretty short, so we kind of got a new bike, we got an alloy bike. And we raced, Laurie and I, well, Laurie did a bunch of testing on it, but I know he's had a lot of struggles and, yeah. and issues with changing um, stuff on that. And for me, 2020 season was just a season of getting back on my bike and racing. So I didn't really have a whole, No, I wasn't really focused on what the bike was doing. I was just focused on my riding. Um, so yeah, we had an alloy bike for that until probably, March, yeah, I want to say like I got my carbon in March 21. Um, and I think the biggest mistake there was probably the rush into carbon. Um, we didn't do enough testing on the alloy, and I think um, we rushed into going into carbon. And obviously, going straight into carbon, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that yeah. make up carbon. So like obviously different layers you know, stiffness, the flex. And yeah, I just think, um, to be honest, like that bike just didn't work, hasn't worked for me the last three seasons. Um, I struggle with it a lot. I think being a heavier rider um, and a lot more aggressive than the likes of Laurie and and Dave and Tuhuru now, um, it just didn't really suit my style and it hasn't suited my style. So yeah, I've struggled, struggled with that bike for the last three years a lot. Um, and I don't take anything away from Mondraker. Like they've put everything into it to make it better for us. And, you know, it's not easy. Um, obviously when you create a carbon bike, it's, you know, not cheap. So, um, obviously having to change that is, is a huge thing. So, yeah, I think for, you know, the likes of Laurie, he, he was able to get away with, with riding that bike and obviously riding it to the limit. Um, and was able to get podiums on it. But for myself, I felt like it kind of similar to, to the GT. Like when I started pushing, um, I struggled a lot. I didn't really know what the bike would do. Um, I had a lot of like front wheel, like no grip on the front wheel. The back would sit in a lot. So like we kind of, we did so much trying to fine tune like shocks to, you know, from shim stacks to heavier springs um more progressive linkages um but yeah i just don't think any of that worked for me and obviously you know the faster the tracks we have now like the i think the more progressive a bike is going to be it's going to be a lot better to be able to sit you up in the suspension but also be able to work really good as well and i think like the suspension platform hasn't really worked out for me um and I know but, Laurie, Laurie had issues as well. I know that from yeah. chatting to him. So it was yeah. a challenge to get it set up for him. And like oh, you say, he's a much lighter yeah. 
it's I mean like for me and like I'm being honest and I don't you know I'm not putting Mondraker down and they they make some amazing bikes and their bikes look great but just like for me every week like last year was like the tipping point for me like I I didn't know what to do like I was going around in circles every weekend I felt like a, a race weekend for me was a test weekend and I was just testing to get the bike set up to where I was comfortable, where I was able to put a race run together. But that race run together for me was so not satisfying because, you know, I was, wasn't was even qualifying at some World Cups and I was coming, you know, 30s, 40s. And for me, that's like so disappointing and so not where I expect, my, expect myself to be. Yeah. So I lost like, I lost so much confidence and trust. And as soon as I lost that, everything just went out the window like that. And that was lost from, from Lords. And like, you know, I'm, I've, I feel like I'm mentally pretty strong and I put myself in a good place when it comes to, um, you know, setting myself up, heading into World Cup. So I have like a, I feel like I have a pretty good vision on what I want to do and what I want to achieve. And when that, you know, goes out the door for me, I feel like everything goes out the door and it's hard when I'm not in the right headspace with what I'm dealing with is is super hard to come back from, especially when you're just going around in circles. Um, yeah, so like for me, you know, confidence and trust was was the biggest issue that I had last year. And and from that, like I lost the love of, of racing my bike. You know, like I'd be at the top warming up and I'd be like, well, I'm just racing my bike today. It's, it felt like a job for me. It felt like work. Didn't feel like I was going there to have fun. Yeah. So like that really hurt me and it really tipped me over and hence why I didn't race about a soul last year because I was to the point where, where I was like, well, why, why should I race when my result's potentially just going to be a mediocre result and I'm also, you know, risking my life to put one run together for you know 40th place so um you know that's where i i got to and i'm you know like i feel like i'm a person that would never give up and um i wouldn't you know i wouldn't not race a race but for me when i got to there it was just the tipping point and i felt like i just need to stop riding and take a break and and yeah. regroup and figure out you know what what I was going to do for the next season. I literally got to the point where I was like with GT, like, what am I going to do? Like, am I going to change brands? Am I going to go to a different bike? Like, you know, it's super hard with, with like creating a new bike, especially in such a short period of time from when we finished racing to now. Um, so yeah, it was sort of like, I was really worried because I, you know, I don't want to go into another season of the same results, the same, headspace where I was in in uh well yeah last year. Yeah. So yeah. So so what's the outcome? Well we've got a new bike coming. Um we're just waiting on obviously it's not easy easy process <laughs> with, with, with bikes. <laughs> um but fingers crossed we'll have something maybe end of February, somewhere sometime in March. Yeah which um, I'm hold, ho- holding high hopes on, which is like, you know, for me, I think it's like just hearing hearing small things, like hearing about the bike, seeing the bike, just being told what's going on, 
gives me that small little hope and, and builds my confidence in, you know, getting that confidence back to where it was. Yeah. Because I feel like, you know, I feel like myself, I have everything there to get back to where I am. I just, you know, obviously the older you get, the more wiser you get and the more knowledge you have in bikes and how they work. And for me, a bike, I feel like a, a bike to me is I need to be at one with it. I need to know what it's doing. Yeah. Whereas like last year and the previous two years before that, I didn't really have that. Um, and I think it's super important to, you know, have trust and confidence in your equipment because it's going to get you to, you know, get you to where you want to be. And, you know, as soon as those results come, that's when everything else follows. And I think like it's so important to be able to have fun on your bike. And when you're not having fun on your bike, it's just, it sucks. hundred <laughs> percent. What was the main motivating factor to, to stay with Mondraker? Cause obviously you've, you just said there are a few difficult seasons um, and you weighed up your options. Why have you decided to stay? Well, I still had another another year with Mon- I still have another year with Mondraker. Um, but like to be honest, Marcus, um, the owner is he's really good, and he like he struggled to see where I was at in Valdezol, and he knew what I was going through and the difficulties, and he was pretty open about like if there's something there um, for you, then go for it. Like if it's going to be something better for you. Um, you know, go for it. But, you know, I'm, I feel like I have like, I'm, I don't know. I'm pretty, um, what's the word? Like I've been with Mondrake for six years. So I kind of like my loyalty to them is, and to Marcus is, is pretty high. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to let him down. And I know like how much him and, and Lucas are pushing Mondrake to get this new bike. So, you know, I obviously want to, with my, you know, existing contract, I still wanted to stay, but it was just that, you know, you know, I was scared of what it was, you know, another year would do to my career. Like, you know, it's pretty cutthroat our sport now. So, you know, I just, I've been like keeping in touch with them and just like trying to be updated just to give me that small hope of, you know, knowing that I'm going to get a new bike and just the confidence, um, you know, to try and build off a, those conversations and knowing that something new's coming. Yeah. Yeah. So Brooke, you mentioned before that you're usually not someone that gives up easily. <laughs> mm. And I can remember um in 2018 in Croatia, the first World Cup, um, you qualified first. And then obviously I'll always remember I'm gonna watching you from the finish, you like slid out on that drop and um crash really hard and and broke your collarbone and a couple of ribs, but it was not like after because no one was coming after you as well. We just you just got up and and rolled to the finish. <laughs> so probably the, probably I was just like, is that a joke? With a broken collarbone, <laughs> probably, probably the most rocky and and gnarly and yeah. So like, I mean, how was yeah. how, how hard was? I mean, you had a couple of hard crashes in 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 your time, but. How yeah. hard was that crash to take? Because that that looked pretty horrible. Fuck, it was hard. Like especially on those rocks, it was. Mm. I mean, that whole track was just rocks. So and it was pretty. Like that section was quite fast. So like you kind of come off and sort of scrubbed off a drop. And I just remember scrubbing and like it, I don't. I feel like it wasn't something that was. It wasn't my fault. There was just I guess mm-hmm. probably maybe s- some gravel on there. 
that when I just pushed my front down, it just slid out and I went over the bars. And, um, yeah, I fucking, I was so winded. I got up and I, like, walked around. I was like, oh, I'm sweet. Like, lifted my shoulder up. I was like, oh, it's a bit sore. And at the time, I was like, fuck, I just don't want to have the issues of, like, being taken down by medics and mm. just the whole process of it. So I thought, like, it was it was a good idea just to ride my bike down and it would be faster for me to get from there to the bottom <laughs> with a broken collarbone. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't know it was a broken collarbone. And when I got taken to the hospital, I was, like, lifting my arm up and I was like, oh, yeah, no, there's something definitely wrong there. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I just... I just manned it out and rode my bike down. I remember there's a lot of fans on the side of the track, hey? You got yeah. like you get the crowd going, I think. Yeah. When yeah, you, definitely. And I, I remember stopping and like putting putting my broken collar broken the side of my where my broken collarbone was. I remember stopping on the side and like waving to the people and I was just like <laughs> <laughs> like in full agony. <laughs> but I mean I mean through the weekend you look like fired up like was there like some kind of we talked about GT and how it was there for you like it looked like you wanted to send a message like you you back like you know yeah I definitely did and I I felt like I proved that and to be honest like I reckon if I didn't have that crash I would have won that race um I just felt so good like I felt Everything around the team, the team environment, the team itself was was good, and we had a good bike. Um, I knew, like going back to Mondraker, that I was going back to a good bike. So yeah, I just I don't know. I felt like I was real fired up for that season, and um, obviously, I still had a great season that year. But I always I always think back and and look back on 2018, and like mm-hmm. if I didn't have that crash, where would have that season taken me? Would it have taken me to a mm-hmm an overall or a top three or a top five. Um, and I don't know, for me, sometimes it's hard to look back on that, but mm. I also look back on it with a lot of positives and, you know, it's always mm-hmm. good to look back on and, and know that, you know, I'm I'm still capable of, of getting those results. So do you get your carbon plater, yeah? Because you got, you got 11 six weeks after your crash. So I guess you... <laughs> still no. <laughs> no, I didn't. I actually didn't get my 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 collarbone plated. I um I literally went home and I was like I was just so like I was tunnel vision of like I'm gonna be racing Fort Williams. So I kind of did everything I could. Like I had I was going to get X rays like every two weeks. Um I was having like cold laser on my shoulder. And like every two weeks, it was just like just going to the hospital and having X-rays was just like a, I don't know just a, for me like to get into my own head that it's healing, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's coming right. And um, yeah, I I just like did everything and everything I possibly do to get my shoulder back and ready for Fort William. Um, it was a clean break, so it didn't like it didn't need to be plated. I could have got it plated, but mm-hmm. I sort of weighed up like going under having anesthetic and you know all of those sort of those factors that it would probably be easier not having that and just letting it heal on its own and which it did like I think it healed within like three weeks so I was like three weeks and I was doing I was able to do push-ups on it so that was kind of an indication of me being able to ride my bike again yeah that's that's great I, I kind of knew you you you've gonna say you're not gonna have 
had it plated. <laughs> it's not <Nah>. really a surprise. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> so you said you said it. Twenty eighteen. What could have been? Yeah, after your with your injury, but you still had a great season. Sixth overall, you got um, two thirds. So um, I guess after the two GT seasons that were hard, you kind of like must have felt you back to your best riding. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I felt, uh, yeah, I definitely felt 2018 season was probably probably my best season I've ever had. Okay. Just with everything, like Laurie and I were just going back and forth with results um, mm-hmm. and we were literally just bouncing off each other, which was awesome. And, you know, we had a good team dynamic running there. Um, so, yeah, everything just sort of fell into place and worked really well. 2019 was going well. You took the win at Crankwork Innsbruck, sixth in Valnord, and, and 30th was your worst result all season. Hopes must have been high coming into Worlds in, in Mont Saint Anne. I think we all know what happened at Worlds in Mont Saint Anne, and there's a lot to chat about, and we'll do just that after these messages. Me again, it's Sasha at Revolution Bike Park. It's that time again. We're going to go and have a chat to a few people about what they think is the best thing about Revolution Bike Park. Collins Corners. <laughs> no, everything. <laughs> everything. Just the lifestyle. Collins, the new track. Uh, red. Oh, the tracks. It's the downhill. The techie stuff for me, definitely. Love it. Um, yeah, it's just different than any other one, I think. I'm just, like, I go to quite a few bike parts uh, quite often. I mean, but for me, Revs is definitely my favourite. The tracks here, like, um, yeah, it's, I don't think there's any much like it. There's a few local places, like off-piece stuff, but for downhill stuff, I mean, even Dovey's got really good tracks, um, awesome bike park, but they don't have the same tight in the trees and stuff like that, and I think that's the stuff I love most, really, yeah. Single Track is the world's finest independent mountain bike magazine, and they have a fantastic offer for podcast listeners right now. If you enter the code MAKINGUP, at checkout, you'll get 50% off Print Plus and digital subscriptions for the first year. Print Plus includes six issues of the magazine, each one containing plenty of ride inspiration, opinion, adventure and reviews, plus full digital access to their site for under £20. With the discount code, digital access to their site starts at just £10 a year. That code, once again, is making up. That's M-A-K-I-N-G-U-P all one word, no spaces, for 50% off Print Plus and digital subscriptions at Single Track. If you're enjoying the Making Up the Numbers podcast, hit subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and drop us a review whenever it's convenient. For additional content, follow us on Instagram at Making Up the Numbers Racing. Looking at the results sheet, Brooke, right from the back at the start, there's no gaps really, right from the start of your career up until... Worlds 2019 you've been racing for the best part of a decade with no major injuries is, is that pretty accurate yeah I mean even the broken collarbone that didn't really you didn't miss any world cups because of that nah I think the only world cups that I've missed is the world cups that I haven't qualified at and Valdesal okay so we believe it was first run of the day um talk us through what happened mate yeah it was uh first run of the day on the second and last day of practice, so it was like, you know, Friday qualifying, and then we have that Saturday, like, three hours practice, and then we go into finals. And I was, like, 
I just obviously come off a third place qualifying and Mount St. Anne is one of my favorite tracks. So like I was pretty fired up. Like I was, I felt like I was at the peak of my season. Um, World Champs was like where I was peaking. And yeah, my initial idea was just to go into that last day of practice and just do potentially one or two runs. I was literally going to judge that after I felt how I felt after my first run. And um, yeah, I dropped in, probably got like maybe, oh, I would say like, what, what do you reckon, Jack? Like 20 seconds into where all that boggy sort of section is where it's sort of like you go from the start, mm. go through those small trees and then f- flattens off and then you sort of like dropped into that new section. Yeah, it's not far. Nah, and it, like that was a new section for World Champs, so it was quite like we had rained the day before and it was quite boggy. So I stopped there um, and just scoped a line out, pushed back up, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to do like a, depending on how I feel, I'm going to do a top to bottom. And like I literally nailed that section and from there I was just like, fuck, this is how my race run is going to be. And, like, I wasn't obviously going as fast as I probably would have gone in my race run, but just, like, everything, I was just, I felt real nimble. Like, I was linking all those flat corners up and just, like, got everything so perfect. And then um, I come into, like, probably the third to last small bit of woods. Um, and, yeah, it was, like, a dropped into, like, a small, like, a 90-degree turn and then over a rock roll. And the previous day, like on qualifying day, we had so much rain, so the track got pretty blown out. And um, I know before me, I think like, I think Reese Wilson had a massive crash on it. I know, I think Flo Payer had a big crash and maybe one other person. And yeah, so come into this right-hander, went to go over this rock roll and clip my like front wheel slid on, oh, sorry, my back wheel slid on like a, small exposed route which just like put me off balance and and basically sent me over the handlebars I literally thought in the air that I was capable of riding it out but like as soon as I got to the like that point where your ass is basically on the tire I knew this was all over and um yeah basically from there I hit the ground so fucking hard that I fractured my t12 and burst my l1 and like the the impact that I hit the ground on literally blew me from one side of the track off to the, like off to the side of it. And um, it happened so quickly. Like I literally went from that top of the rock to being on the ground, to being off the side within, I don't know, five, five, six seconds. And I just remember like I was in so much fucking agony and I was on my side and I was trying to roll onto my back and, and I like, I couldn't like, I, actually literally couldn't roll onto my back because my legs obviously were paralyzed. So I didn't, and at the time I didn't really know, like I was obviously in shock and adrenaline and fucking God knows what else, like just everything around me was just like a blur. And I literally just was like, fucking hell, this is not good. And like, I knew that I needed to get to the hospital as soon as possible. Um, and I needed to like be stabilized and be put into, you know, um, a position where I was comfortable. So as soon as the medics turned up, I was still like obviously in that side position and they um, 
they transferred me into a stretcher and and left me in that um, on that side position. Took me out um, and sort of regrouped and and uh, got me semi what comfortable. And then they were like, they were like, oh, well, I was like, fucking, I need to get out of here. Like, I need to get out of here. I know knew how bad this injury was, and I knew like I just didn't have a great feeling, and I wanted to be in hospital just so I was comfortable and had an idea of what was going on and um they fucking tried to put me on this quad with like on this trailer and take me down the hill and and jack and emmy you know how fucking gnarly that side of the hill yeah. is where they drive those quads up <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a track yeah. so they wanted to take me down down that with with uh, a broken with a spinal cord or spinal injury and um they got me on it and I'm like, fuck, no way. Like I was like, as soon as they moved and like, I didn't really know, like I was, you know, to me, I just wanted to be at the fucking bottom of the hill or as soon as possible taken out of there. And like when and blank, you were like, no, you fucking can't do that. Like fucking get them off. And I was like, right, you guys like, you guys need to get me a helicopter. Like now I need a helicopter. Like I need to be taken out of here as soon as possible. And I like, yep, sweet. We'll call up a helicopter. And um, so they called up a helicopter and fuck, it was probably like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes had gone by. And I'm like, fuck, like, where is this helicopter? Like, you called in for a helicopter 20 minutes ago and this helicopter's not here. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, here it is, here it is. Because I could hear a helicopter above me. But, like, they were just giving me false information and fucking the helicopter that came past me wasn't for me. And that sort of, like, repeatedly kept happening and... I don't know, you know, four hours later, a fucking helicopter turned up and when it turned up, it circled for half an hour because there was nowhere to like, there was no helipad to put the heli down. So they were like freaking out about that. And I had like, luckily I had um, PD there for like basic the whole lot of four hours, which was like really comforting because he was there. He spoke English. I had like French speaking people around me. So it didn't make it any easier and like just having him around really made like that whole experience a little bit nicer than what it was. And um, so, yeah, like as soon as, well, when that helicopter was there, there was fucking, they were having arguments and like one dude who was walking the track was a pilot for, um, for a heli that lifts out logs. And he was like, look, this is what you need to do. You just need to come in and put the skids into the side of the hill and you can load them like that. And they were just like fucking having big arguments about that and like saying, no, nah, we can't do that. And um, yeah, so eventually they did that. So they got me in the helicopter. And like in that meantime of that four hours, like there was only two doctors on the hill. So one doctor at the time when I had my accident was up sorting out another person. And then the other doctor was at the cross country for a dude who fucking had a massive crash and knocked himself out, got back on his bike and went over the handlebars and dislocated his hip and spent like four, I think four laps on the side of the track before he was actually taken out and taken into an ambulance. So it was like, it was just a bit of a shit show. And then when that doctor got to me, like they had no um, pain relief. So like I was like probably just getting like, I don't know, some paracetamol, like, rated sort of drugs and fuck that didn't do anything and I had so much of it over that course of four hours that you know I was still in so much pain 
And then um, my partner, Lucy and Marcus had gone to the hospital. So they were already at the hospital when I was just about taking off in the heli. And um, they asked, I think in the ED room that if they knew anything about a mountain biker coming in with a spinal injury and they were like, um, yeah, we know about that. And they were like, well, he's coming in by heli. And they were like, well, our heli is under construction at the moment, so they won't be flying here. So literally Marcus, I think Marcus had to call someone who had to relay to PD and then PD had to tell, I think, the pilots. I don't know. It was just a fucking massive cluster. (laughs) (laughs) And then so we flew to Quebec Airport, which was like 25 minutes got out of the heli into an ambulance, which was like another 20 minutes. And like, you know, their roads over there, how like every hundred meters they got splits in them. Yep. So like I'm in, you know, I'm in the, and their ambulances over there are so fucking big and heavy. So like every split in the road that I was going over, was just like boof, boof. So every time I was going over there, I could just feel like my, like my lower back moving. And it was the most excruciating pain I'd ever been through. And, um, like, that 20 minutes felt like it was, like, two hours getting to the hospital. And I got to the hospital, and then I got into doing all my scans, MRIs. And I was pretty, like, dazed at that point and um, didn't really know what was going on. And by the time I got there, it was probably, like, 5 o'clock, and then I never got out from there until about 10 o'clock. So, like, it was too late to do surgery. And, um, yeah, luckily my, like, you know, I think within 12 to 24 hours, there's that time frame of being able to operate and actually potentially fix everything and, and you know, potential potentially have, you know, regain um, feeling in, in your legs. Um, so, yeah, like in that whole period of from 5 to 10, I had all those scans, scans seeing doctors. Um, had ketamine, went on a fucking crazy trip, left my body and like was in <laughs> Mars walking around on space dust and <laughs> doctor f- shoving a finger up my ass. <laughs> it was just the most crazy and bizarre experience. Um, and like probably like the highlight of that, that, you know, from five to 10 o'clock with all the scans and having checked over was, was actually when, I don't know, it doesn't sound pleasant, but when the doctor put his finger up my ass and asked me to clench and I was able to clench and feel it like that gave me, he was like, oh, that's a great sign. And I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is like, this is a lot of hope. And like, obviously because I was paralyzed and like, I think that's a indicator for them to know whether, what well, know how bad the damage is, whether you can um, like squeeze your sphincter and feel that so that like you know obviously being on ketamine and fucking having that done to me I was still like out of this world and didn't know what was going on but like for me that was like a great indicator of like when he said that like I was you know there was potential there to regain feeling in my legs so yeah I went on some people pay for that kind of weekend, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely didn't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the next day I went into surgery and I had an eight-hour surgery and two rods um, and eight screws put in and decompression and, um, and my L1 all put back together. 
And, um, yeah, basically from there was a full-on year of, of recovery and, yeah, I spent two weeks in, in Canada um, not really knowing what was going on and not really knowing what I could do because as soon as I come out of that surgery, I was like, fuck, the, my goal is to race the following year. Like I had that engraved into my head and that was what I was going to do. And I think, you know, if I didn't have that engraved into my head, I don't, I don't know if I'd be where I am today because um, I could have gone down a road of just being fucking lazy and, you know, not put in the work that I did to get to where I am and just be, you know, someone who's not as strong as what I am now, but like just walking around maybe with a limp or, you know, just living a somewhat semi-normal life. Um, and I was like, fuck, no, there's no way I'm going to do that because obviously for, you know, somewhat of a decade I've been racing my bike and that's all I knew. So I wanted to get back to, you know, doing my job and being a normal person. So, yeah, those two weeks in, in Canada were a long two weeks because we were obviously going back and forth with insurance and trying to get flights back and, you know, we're exploring other options of going to America and going to Canada to do rehab because that's all I wanted to do was just get stuck straight in the rehab. And um, I had no, like, no pain whatsoever after my surgery. Like, I stopped taking all the drugs that I was on because, like, I remember just waking up with this the sorest kidneys from, I think, all the drugs that I had. And I was just like, fuck, there's no way I'm going to keep doing this. And I didn't really want to get hooked on anything as well and sort of, like, rely on that stuff. So I was just sort of cut everything out. And I was lucky enough that I had no pain whatsoever for, you know, that whole time of of my rehab so yeah i did that and then i got um i got a flight lucy and i got a flight back home so you know she spent two weeks here with me just fucking running around between airbnbs and hotels like her life was a fucking it was upside down and you know i couldn't imagine what i had put her through and what the fucking damage i'd done so like yes we got um we got transferred back to New Zealand. I went straight into um, straight into Burwood, which was a spinal unit in Christchurch, and spent four weeks there. And to be honest, like those four weeks were probably the, the best four weeks of my life because I changed. I had like so much had changed from when I got there to when I left. Like my goal was to walk out of out of there with no crutches or a wheelchair or a walker. And um, yeah, I had great people around me there. Lucy spent the four weeks there with me and we were just like in and out of rehab and Blinky gave us his car to use. So we were like driving around and just like being somewhat of a normal person because like it's so hard when you're an independent person and then you get put in a situation where you, you know, you can barely walk and barely do anything. So like being able to have that, um, that was pretty awesome. And yeah, just the, you know, I gained so much and, I was able to walk out of there with nothing. Like obviously I had a, had a cane for when I got tired, but um, yeah, I, had, I was lucky enough that I got put with a physio who, who knew, knew who I was and what I did and was also a mountain bike fan. So like those four weeks were just like fucking massive progressive steps for me. And like, just like, I don't know, it, it felt like it wasn't a place to have fun, but I actually had a lot of fun there because I was like noticing massive improvements each day and each week. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, at the same time, it was also a pretty horrible place to be because you're with people that, you know, 
paraplegic and te- tetraplegic that are, you know, when you go to the gym and here's fucking me walking around with two crutches and like a big smile on my face and these people like can hardly sit on a bike and push their legs or like sit on a arm row and move their arms around and they're like, you know, looking at me while I'm having a laugh with my physio. You know, that that kind of place wasn't like, I didn't feel really comfortable because, I don't know, I just, I don't know, it was weird. I felt like, you know, here's me, happy, and then there's these people here that can hardly talk or move their arms and they're in a place that's probably pretty dark and I'm here walking around. like yeah. So I, I kind of struggled a little bit with that, but I kind of like also sort of shut myself off from it. But I'd always like come back in and like, you know, there was a girl who, who'd come in and try to commit suicide, jumped off a roof and, and um, smashed her back up. And, you know, just like that sort of shit was, was real hard to take. And like seeing her sitting there in a wheelchair while I'm walking around and like looking at me and I'm smiling at her and she's smiling back at me. But I'm like, well, you know, you try to take your life in here. You trying to smile at me like are you actually okay or you're just smiling at me because you're happy for me walking around I don't know it was just it was real 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 weird and hard to hard to process but like I put in a lot of work there and and you know left there in a great mindset like I was able like I said to my physio like when can I ride a bike like I want to ride a bike just to know and get in my head that I can actually still ride a bike you know at the time I didn't really know if it was possible or not and that was five weeks post-surgery and I hopped on a bike and fuck, I could ride a bike better than I could walk. And, you know, that kind of told me something and just gave me more confidence and more motivation to, you know, for that next step of leaving Burwood and going home on my own and, you know, not having to rely on someone and, you know, someone come and get me every day. So, um, yeah, that really put me in a good frame of mind heading home and being independent or somewhat independent. And then, um, yeah, basically spent the somewhat of, I think maybe six months with my physio here in Hawke's Bay and he done a really good job. And we just like, my coach gave us a program that was tailored to getting me back to strength and just strengthening things up. Cause obviously with an accident like that, like everything goes, your all your new nerves, are so damaged that nothing really works. So like firing muscles was super hard. And, you know, I did, I did so much stuff. I did like acupuncture four times a week. I did like massage. I did chiropractor. I was just like, so my whole week, my seven days was so busy for like four months that it didn't burn me out, burn me out, but it almost did. And I was like, I was like, just, I had a tunnel vision. So like anything around me was just like not feasible of like being thought of. And I just, you know, my thought of was just like, get back to riding my bike into where I was. And um, yeah, so luckily with, you know, when I had my accident, there was no racing after it. So like I had that whole season to premiere myself. And then even more lucky, I went into 2020 and COVID happened. So that kind of like, Put everything out of place and I was able to come back and, and race. And like six months after my accident, I had half of my rods taken out, which was which was a game changer. I don't think if I had hadn't had them taken out, I would be anywhere 
what I am today. I think um, that limited me a lot. And um, yeah, so when I had those taken out, I like had six weeks recovery and, you know, that's when I found out everything happened with COVID. Because my idea was to be back for the first World Cup in Mar- I think it was Maribor. <laughs> and like, to me, that wasn't stupid, but fuck, I'm pretty sure to everyone else it was probably a stupid idea. And now I look back on it, it was probably not doable. Well, in my head, it was doable. And I probably would have made it happen. But I'm glad like everything yeah. happened in, in 2020 and I was able to just come back when, you know, I had another, I don't know, two or three months to get fit and get strong again and be able to ride my bike. And, um, yeah, went overseas in 2020 and did, like, six weeks of, of riding just around Europe, which was awesome. And, like, like, I felt like I'd never left my bike. And, I don't know, I, obviously I still had a lot of a lot of difficulties with, like, fatigue in my legs and, like, being able to feel where the pedal was when I was unclipping and clipping in and stuff like that. But, yeah, it all, all come around, like, pretty quickly. It's probably, like, you know, I think, yeah. I, I, I like to say that I'm fully recovered now and obviously I'm still getting stronger and um Can I can I just pause you there, bro? Because there's you've we've we've skipped ahead massively on the script here because you talk so so you know so well about it. It's it's your story. There's a couple of things i I wanted to ask though. The first one is that I, can't, I still can't believe that I'm saying this, but the world championships, the absolute pinnacle of, of our sport. You had to wait five hours for for a helicopter evacuation. Have the UCI ever contacted you and apologised for that? Um, not really. Um, I think like yeah, I don't know. I just yeah, no one really contacted me and and asked if everything was okay. I think Simon Burney messaged me, but I never really got a message. And you know, they kind of fucking pissed me off because you know, like at the end of the day, it's you know, their organisation of putting that race together. And I feel like it would have been nice for even, I don't even know if someone, you know, come in and seen me. Like, that would have been been nice. Um, But, no, nothing really happened of that. And, it yeah, it, it, it pissed me off for a long time, but I knew that it, I couldn't let it get to me because otherwise it would just sit there and I'd just boil on it and it would just... Mm certain things would just piss me off. So I kind of just try to put that aside and yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't hear, obviously Simon was the only person that really apologized, but no one else in, in the UCI contacted me and asked if I was okay or apologized yeah. for, for what happened, which I think is pretty piss poor because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we're the ones that are putting on the show for them. So I think um, in Fort William, you said that, you thought very little had changed with regards to safety and rider safety. Is that the number one priority for the Riders Association, Emmy? Yeah, of course. I think it was one of the reasons why it was created in the first place. Um, in the past years, like the riders were communicating through like chats and stuff with the um, technical delegates yep. um, of the UCI about like track changes and stuff. And, it was a bit hectic at times and a bit heated, but um, I feel like um, now with having like a external person from the station like me, it would be easier. So the riders don't like in the heat of the moment get a little bit caught up and like in words or whatever and try to like yeah. make stuff happen. Um, I've 
had a few talks with um Rory Kinnigan from ESO um head of sports and he's like pretty confident that next season is going to be a lot like put in place for safety so um we've heard good things so we we're going to see what is going to actually happen and we the association will be I'll be there at every race trying to like make sure the riders race in the safest conditions so the next bit is from personal experience I wanted to ask you this in 2016 I had a big one at Glencoe tore my liver ended up in hospital nine days in hospital nothing compared to what you've gone through and I distinctly remember my wife coming up to me as I'm laid in in A&E and she went well that's the end of that then isn't it no more racing down here we'll find something else to do and and she she always tells the story that I said at finish I'm only just getting started as I'm kind of laid (laughs) there on the on the bed in (laughs) A&E what was the reaction of your nearest and dearest when you told them oh I'm gonna race World Cups no one really told me anything. I know deep down like that Lucy didn't want me to keep racing. Yeah. Obviously because what I put her through, um, she obviously wouldn't want to experience it again. But, you know, like she never really, she never said that to me. She never told me that this is it, you've got to stop racing. Um, she kind of semi-hinted, but she knew that like this is, what I've done for the best part of half of my life. So, you know, at the end of the day, like it's, you know, it's my job. And for me, like, I know I look back on it and it's just something that had put a, put a, a pause in my life and I unpaused it and and carried on. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, up until that point, I thought I was indestructible and I still probably somewhat think I am indestructible. Like, I've taken some fucking massive crashes after I've broken my back and thought, how have I not broken my back again? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think... uh, Linking to that, something that I have always wanted to ask, when you crashed, were you wearing a back protector? I was wearing a back back protector, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I, I, to be honest, I don't like, I don't think if I had a back protector on or not, I don't think it would have – I think it would have been the same because I think it was just the way I landed and the impact because I kind of landed like into – not – it was like a slight uphill with just hard sheer rock on it. So, like, yeah, I kind of just like landed into a small uphill and folded in half and, yeah, yeah. I just don't think like – I don't know, anything would have stopped that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, th- 13 months later – you're back racing at Crank, Crankworks Innsbruck and you didn't exactly just turn up and roll down the hill. Uh, you finished 11th. Um, I mean, I was interviewed recently by a guy who's doing a some kind of PhD or whatever about uh, mental toughness. And he, he asked me as part of the interview who I thought on the circuit was a demonstration of, of mental toughness in downhill. And obviously um, my go-to was yourself. Um I just think what you've been through and the fact you've come back in the way you have is absolutely incredible. And I know nobody would disagree with that. Um, Cheers, bro. The question is, how hard has this psychological battle been for you? Are, are you through it and out the other side? And what I mean by that, because I personally, for me, the mental, mentally toughest people in downhill are the ones that can deal with adversity. And 
I I think the biggest adversity in downhill is is the risk of injuring yourself and potentially yeah going through what you've been through. So has that doubt or that what if something happening again? Has it completely gone? Are you back to the the Brooke McDonald that that you were before that incident? Yeah, I I definitely feel like I am the Brooke Mac, Brooke McDonald I am before the accident. Like it's it's funny and it's weird because like the way I look at it is like I've had like such a significant injury in my life, but it's my back, and I feel like my back is the most furthest bit of bone away from everything else that I'm in control of on my bike. If you get what I mean, like you know, like my wrists and my knees and my ankles probably come first and then my shoulders yeah, and then my ribs and then my back. I don't know. That's the way I looked at it. And I'm like, fuck, well, the last thing that's going to happen is like probably breaking my back if I'm going to land on it. But I feel like everything else is like I'm protected from everything else. I'm protected with my arms and with my legs. And I think it's just the way if I was to break my back again, it would be the way that I'd land on it. If you get yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Cause I, I completely agree with your logic because when you think about it, everybody could look at what you've been through and go, oh, fuck, I don't want that. And we could all retire tomorrow. Like, yeah, we love what we do. This happened to you. You've recovered from it. And hopefully it'll never happen to you or anyone else again. So, yeah, I completely agree. And I think anybody looking in who does this sport should should use you as an example of of how to overcome any kind of injury adversity. Um, yeah, thank you, bro. So anyway, mo- moving on then to 2021. I mean, f- 15th in Maribor and 18th in Lenzerheide. Um, as you said, I think you said it to us before, like t- getting top 20s at this sport, the way the sport is now in terms of the level, um, I guess you f- must feel like you're pretty much back to the best of your riding as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, bro. And to be honest, like I wasn't, like I was obviously happy with those results. Like that was a massive achievement for me. But, you know, as a, yeah, as an athlete, you want more and like that's everything that you want. And like you obviously set goals and you, you set bars of what you want to achieve. And, you know, like my achievement for that 21 season was to be a top, a consistent top, t- top 15 rider and have some top 10s. And they obviously didn't happen. But, you know, like people, people would say, people would say, oh, well, but you've come back from a massive life changing injury. But for me, like, that injury was in 2019 and I recovered from that. Obviously I was still recovering, but my mindset wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to blame my injury on, on my results. And I wasn't going to, you know, say, Oh, you know, today I was a bit fatigued and, you know, my back was a bit sore, you know, my, I had already moved on from, from my injury and moved on to, you know, what I wanted to achieve next. The, the, yeah, for sure. It's, it's a weird, weird thing to say. I, I don't, I don't know if it is a compliment, but what I put in the script was the greatest compliment I can give you is that like, I'm looking at the results in 2022 and I look at it and go, fuck, what's happened to Brooke? He's not having a very good season. And at no point do you think, oh, he bro- had his broken back, didn't he? And like, we're doing the first half of this podcast and you're talking about stuff and I'm like, oh, fuck, he broke his back. You know, like we, we haven't got to that <laughs> bit yet. And you're talking about 2022 and I'm like, this is a guy who broke his back just a few years ago, yeah. And you still, you, you, in my head, my expectations gone back to well, why aren't he on the podium, kind of? Why aren't he in the yeah, top ten? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely, I definitely understand it. But just, yeah, to, obviously, to, to be honest, twenty twenty two was probably the shittest season I've ever had in my career. Mm. And like, 
to a point where I actually didn't even enjoy riding my bike like I was tuning up. Yeah. And like I would I would get into this mind frame of like excitement and and know that like I'd visualize and you know manifest on what potentially could happen for my weekend. And as soon as I hopped on the bike and one small thing happened, like, you know, like an unexpected front wheel wash, that was my weekend done because I knew that was where the confidence and trust went out the window. So much of it psychological. Yeah, yeah, massively, massively. And, And like, I don't know, I feel like, yeah, it's just, I don't know, as soon as you get that, like, you know, you just need to look at riders like, that have the confidence and, and trust in their equipment, look how good they're doing. And I think yeah. like, I know Bernicke, I think like is a great example. He's someone with so much confidence and, you know, obviously has had a, you know, up and down career of results. And like, as soon as like one results happen, he's just like, his confidence just goes sky high. And he even still has so much confidence when things aren't going well. And like I think that's just the you know the person he is and what what he can do. But like obviously everyone's different. And for me, like I think you know for me results and getting good results is is a huge confidence for me. And like and I think also having a good bike and having a good good equipment and and being with one of it all is like a huge huge confidence boost for me too. Because as soon as I like as soon as I jump on a bike and I know how good it is, that's just when I know everything's right and obviously from the you know you can change a lot of things to make it better but as soon as like you know i i, I could jump on my 2019 bike and go faster than i could on my current bike i reckon mm. just because i know what it rides like and i know how it rides and i know what it's done for me in the past yeah for sure for sure you um so you you told us a lot about this 2022 season and that tough it was and also the relationship with the bike. It wasn't a zero stem, but <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not ideal. But this year you also went to Hardline. And I want to know a little bit more about that because I think it was amazing that you went and I saw it succumb a couple of videos of you hitting like the on off and, um, the 90 foot and stuff. You didn't end up racing. But uh, you weren't the only one that didn't race. Um, after all you've been through and all the story that you talk talked about now for and um, through this podcast, uh, how do you still like enjoy getting out of your comfort zone like that? Like that's a pretty hard getting out of the comfort zone event. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're definitely right, Amy. Um, obviously, with pulling out of um, out of Velda Soul, like. My team is like, well, do you actually feel like you need to go to hardline? Do you think you can't? You should go to hardline. And like in my head, I wanted to because I wanted, like you said, I wanted to take myself out of my comfort zone. And I had not, I had not done stuff that big since since I last went to hardline, or since I did my dream track. And like, you know, dream track obviously wasn't anything compared to what hardline is. But like, I just wanted to go there just to know for myself that I was still capable of being able to handle doing that sort of stuff. And like, it was, a you know, obviously it was a fucking scary week and every, every jump that I ticked off was just like, you know, I was just building confidence and more confidence. Mm-hmm. And like when I hit those 90 footers, like that was just like, everything was like so much easier 
And like, I just felt like there was, had been like a massive weight lifted off my shoulders and the fact of knowing for myself, I was still able to do that stuff. And like, I mean, I could, I could have just stopped and put my bike down and, and been happy with, with how I rode that week. And obviously like, you know, still dealing with like the trust and confidence in the bike and being able to put together a full top to bottom race run um, at hardline is like mentally challenging. Like it's not like just racing a downhill where you kind of like go as fast as you can. You've still got like massive jumps to overcome and like, you know, knowing all your speeds and what speeds to hit stuff at, like that was just like super overwhelming. And I also had had some bike issues as well that I didn't really want to race on and obviously mm. potentially have, have risk. But yeah, Hardline was a, was a great week and like it was just a, a week of like building confidence and, and taking myself out of my comfort zone, which was really awesome. And like I left there with like a massive smile on my face and like I knew that I could just go home and put my bike down and, and be happy after mm-hmm. the season that I had. And that was kind of just like a small, you know, small step in the right direction of, of building some confidence towards the season. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, like not having to race Valdisol because you and like not feeling like it was worth the risk and then going to somewhere with like a better setting, like with friends and like finding yeah. your mojo back kind of stuff is like, and then you finished the year strong as well with second place at Crankworks. So I guess it, it proved it to be the right choice to go to Harline and find that confidence back. So you fired up for 2023, I guess, hey? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I've actually like, I've changed quite a bit in, in like my training this year. I went and seen, a, I went and spent three days at a integrated um, intensive training course um, up in Auckland, which was awesome. Which was just a lot of like, a lot of breathing work, but also a lot of like figuring out how to handle stress tolerances and how to, how to handle situations like I was in in 2022 and just being able to deal with that and not fall back into the place I was. So I did that, which was awesome. And it's changed. I feel like it's changed a lot of my outlook on life and how to approach things and how to approach stuff. If it's not in place for me, because I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty detailed and perfectionist person and, you know, not everything is perfect these days and it's hard to hard to come by having perfect everything. So like being able to make it somewhat perfect and being able to deal with that um, with everything that I learned on this breathing course is, um, has been really good and like, you know, I'm meditating every day and like doing mobility and a bunch of other stuff that I probably would never have done and like just change the way of how I breathe and those sorts of things has been been really cool. Nice. Right, well, let's finish things off with some questions about the future. Are we right in saying you're 31 or are you 30? 31, yeah. You're 31. One year left with Mondraker, like you said. What are the aspirations going into this year? Um, yeah, obviously with a new bike coming, hopes to be able to have, another, have a great season. Um, I definitely want to be a consistent top, 10 top 15 rider um that's always my goal and it would be a dream to add some podiums in there um but also just like just just to get the love of 
of riding my bike back and, and enjoying it and having fun um, because I think that's going to get me a long way with re- with results. Sure. Okay. How many times have you been national champ now? Is that is that a target? Uh, maybe once. I think I've only been national champ once or twice. Blinky has been so many times, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. I'm normally like, I'm normally <laughs> away when national champs is on. I'm normally mm. in Europe doing some testing or, or something. So for a lot of it, I've missed um, missed that. But yeah, national champs this year, I'll definitely, it would definitely be cool to, to get that jersey. And then final question, um, what are your feelings about ESO and about the changes that we've seen for 2023 in a, in a nutshell? How are you looking at it? To be honest, I don't really know. Like, um, I don't know. It's it's a hard one. I think um, I just want to race my bike and I just want to have a good series that is going to work well for us. And like, yeah, I don't know, Amy, what like we <laughs> we've had no <laughs> chats about yeah. it. And like, yeah. to be honest, like to be brutally honest, when we've had when we've had when we had a meeting, I zoned out after forty minutes because I felt like what we'd proposed didn't really get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And like, I think at the end of the day, like, like I said earlier, we are the show, like we are the important people. So like, obviously we want to work with ESO and make it better, but mm-hmm. we also want to, we don't know what they're going to make better. And we, it's, I don't know, it's sort of nervous of how it's going to be made better. Like you, yeah. you've probably got a better idea, Jack, being a team manager and maybe having a bit more understanding, but, I, to be honest, I zone out a little bit because I just fucking want everything to be as simple as possible and just make it mm-hmm. easy for us and yep. easy for people to watch and tune in mm-hmm. and, you know, easy for teams. I don't, yeah. We're basically, yeah, you want to be able to trust them to deliver what, what we need. And uh, I think the big thing at the moment is, like you say, they're not, they're not really communicating with the riders. And I mean, they might be communicating with the elite team managers, but the rest of us just get sent. A little summary document once the decisions have been made. We don't get any. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, I feel like we we definitely need to be way more involved than what we are. Like, I mean, that press release that was released, we didn't, we no one knew about that. Like, you see it mm. now. Before. <laughs> like, we should have been told that before it was released. And you know, obviously, when something like that happens, it fucking pisses people off. And yep. mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't put people in in good places of reading something that's been put on the internet that we're going to go and race and potentially compete in this series mm. this year and not telling us before, like, you know, if they told us before, it would have been awesome because then we could have discussed about it and, you know, come up with things that work in our way, in our favor and things that work in their favor. So, yeah, I just don't know yet. I just don't, I don't have, I have some trust in them, but I don't have full trust. Like I just want to know, what's going to happen. I know, and I know they have like a lot on their plate building a new, well, not a new mm-hmm. series, but changing, changing a lot of things. Yeah. That's, that's the decision to change a lot of things that we are like, Oh, maybe it will be best to leave it for a year and see how it go. Yeah. And the decision were made to change a lot of things. So now they have a lot on their plate for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, why, why change something if it's not broken? Like, you know, I think we've like Red Bull done a great job and I think like they could bring what Red Bull had and maybe change some small things or change what they think, but like maybe do that for a year and if it works well, keep it. If it doesn't, then, you know, finish the season, talk to us and change 
what they want to change or discuss what they think could be changed. I don't know. Yeah, I just, as I say, I hope that you guys setting up the Riders Union and Emmy and um, Nico heading that up, I, I just hope that that can find find real strength and get to a point where what is happening with that does carry weight because it's exactly what you said before. I've said it before on the podcast. Without the Riders, they've got nothing. Yeah, and I just don't want to see like, I just don't want to see small teams being pushed aside like yourself, Jack, with running mm-hmm. a team that doesn't yeah. have a massive budget like, you know, specialised in Trek. Like, you know, you we all are the face of the sport, whether, you know, it's Trek or, or your small team. Like, you've still got riders on there that are potential top 20 riders. Like, mm-hmm. you know, why try and push teams out like that? And, like, if you're going to do that, what are you going to create for them? Like, you're going to create a smaller series that is going to potentially bring them into, you know, into the elite level of our sport with a being able to bring in, you know, sponsors that are going to be able to put good budgets into, you know, making it affordable to cover, you know, the costs of registration and all of that stuff. Absolutely. And that's the thing, as you just said, they've, they've doubled the entry fees for a team our size to register. And yeah, what, you- what does it cost? Like 12 and a half thousand? That's for elite teams. So for for a mountain bike team like mine, it used to be two thousand five hundred euros, and now they, they've doubled it. And in the document they send you, there's no clear explanation as to why it would be double. The only thing there is because there's a different media outlet, you're mm-hmm. paying double. That's it. So you have to have the trust that you're getting something for your money that you weren't getting before. Um, yeah, exactly. And you want to know what benefits you, if you're paying 5,000 euros, you want to know what benefits you're getting and, yeah. you know, know what that it's, what it's worth. Exactly. But yeah, it seems like all the riders and a lot of people we speak to are saying the same thing. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the message will get through. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully like. You just need to get like, it's a, try to like work with ESO and, and people from like broadcasting. You need to find a positive like way to try to make them understand what what downhill is, like what we what downhill is for us and try to like because they wanna do something out of like downhill for their broadcast. And I feel like we need to like find a positive way to say, okay, we wanna try to help you grow the sport, but downhill is that for us and we're trying to like keep that as true as possible. And that's really hard to do, but we we are learning. I'm learning <laughs> every week yeah. and I think we're still in January and I think like for the riders they are in the preparation and it's hard to like to get into like doing surveys and doing meetings and doing this and doing that and nothing is like quite concrete but um, I try to motivate the troops and make sure that people all can raise something that they really look forward to you know yeah 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 that's the most important thing is that we know what we're getting it well well yeah what we're going to be racing like you know like the whole semi-final things like i i don't know about that i just don't i think why change it why why not just keep qualifying in finals like yeah you know like we spoke about Emmy. like fuck imagine having a a qualifying semis and final on mount saint and fort william or val de sol you know Mm. and like it's just it's it's not like we're like we're not complaining and we're not, we're, we're not pussies. Like we fucking put everything into the sport, but like 
the way our sport is going and where, like the level we're at is like you have to be on it 110% from when you leave that gate to when you cross that finish line. And, you know, I think like adapting to all of those, you know, three races is going to be so hard and like it's going to be so taxing. And, you know, two days of qualifying and finals is already taxing. So like imagine adding another race. I think it's going to be twice as hard. Yeah, sure. We certainly live in, in interesting times. Well, look, thank you for making the time to come on the pod, Brooke, and thank you for your honesty. I, you know, I wasn't expecting anywhere near that level of honesty when I asked which was, <laughs> which was, of the two bikes you'd have chosen. <laughs> <laughs> Best of luck for, for next season. I, I hope you get the bike that you, you, you know, you, you really want and we can see the bulldog back in the, um, in the top tens, you're an inspiration, I think, to not just me, but to, to pretty much everybody in mountain biking. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. Thanks to the sponsors of the show, Hope Technology, JTEC Suspension, Revolution Bike Park, Ride Southern Spain, Schwalb and SingletrackWorld.com. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you've got a sec, please drop us a review. Alternatively, please give us a follow on Instagram at Making Up The Numbers Racing or Facebook.com slash Making Up The Numbers. Thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon. This has been the Mammoth Production for Making Up the Numbers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.